just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. So your draft is coming up and you have a sinus infection that has knocked you right on your nose. So you have to get a proxy to draft for you. How do you make that work? I'll ask Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 28th. It's show number nine of the 2023 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Tuesday tout edition for you. We'll have a feature interview with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports, discussing drafting by proxy and some last-minute drafting tips about using the first overall pick, some 2023 over-under best bets, and yes, we're going to touch on the Final Four and the amazing season of the Boston Bruins, plus he'll have a big set of boons and banes. It's another big Tuesday Tout Edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We have a Hall of Famer in the house. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Tuesday Tout Edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Scott Pianowski, the Hall of Famer from the Fantasy Sports Writer Association and a regular at Yahoo Sports. Scott, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. So how many drafts have you played so far this year and how many more to come this weekend? Yeah, I think I got five or six in the books and there's at least two more, maybe a third. Um, There's a league that's been on hiatus since the pandemic that's talking about getting back together. So looking forward to that. And that's an in-person auction. So that's a bunch of really great guys, uh, including Peter Morris, who you may know is a noted baseball author, Hall of Fame voter. And and just it's a really fun group of guys. It's an auction that takes forever because they go really slow, but it it doesn't matter. It's all about the camaraderie, right? Yeah, I never understood people who said, we got to do something to speed up the auction. It kind of spills over to some of the discussion I hear about why do we have to speed up the games? But I thought the games were just getting out of hand at three and a half hours. But gosh, the auction is so much fun. I'd stretch it out all day if I could figure out a way to do it and to just slow down the pressure. But I think in Tout Wars, which is the only auction I play anymore, I think part of the challenge that they want to present to us is you have to decide quickly. You have to act quickly because it's a better test of your acumen or so they think. And, uh, and, uh, but I, like I said, I'd go eight hours if they'd let me. Well, if, if you can get to Michigan next weekend, we have a spot for you. It may be an eight hour auction, but I actually agree with the idea of the pacing. Um, I used to be a competitive Scrabble player. I'm not anymore. Uh, again, Peter Morris, a competitive Scrabble player. Uh, former national champion, I want to say, now retired. But uh, Scrabble is a game, 25 minutes aside. Chess obviously is played as a timed game. I'm looking forward to the pacing of of the new rules. I, I wouldn't mind if the pitch clock was maybe a little less stringent, a little more time. But you know, it's not it's not the the game itself that was 
frustrating to me. It was just the the guys stepping off and the the batting gloves being adjusted every pitch. And you know, somebody threw up that cute tweet about a, a couple of weeks ago about somebody finishing an inning in spring training in the time that took somebody to throw a pitch in the playoffs. And that that was obviously symbolic of the problem that baseball had. I, I'm also looking forward to the the shift ban. Look, you can't you can't play certain defenses in basketball. There are rules about where you have to line up in football. You can't cherry pick in hockey. I know some people get frustrated and say, "Why are we penalizing teams for being smart?" But I don't think it's satisfying when a left-handed batter grounds out to a keg party in right field. I, I don't know. I you can still you're still going to be able to shift to some degree. You just can't do it to the extreme natures that teams were doing it. There's going to be more hits baked into the game. I, I don't know. I think that's a good thing. I remember talking to Joe Sheehan years ago here on the show and his opinion then, and I believe it is now, is that there weren't enough singles in the game. That was the biggest problem, he thought, in baseball, that because of the three true outcomes focus and the power game focus, that they swapped in a you know a thousand singles a year for a thousand strikeouts a year, and, and that took runners off the base paths and the... Uh, it turned out that he was largely correct when uh, Theo Epstein did the big uh, project in which he tried to figure out what people don't like about baseball. What they don't like about baseball is that nothing happens. And what they do like about baseball, he said, was triples, stolen bases, and uh, great plays in the in the uh, outfield, or great plays generally, defensive plays. And the, the strikeout, home run, walk orientation of modern baseball was providing people who wanted to watch those things with none of those things or with too few of those things to offset the long gaps with, as you said, guys adjusting their jock straps and and every other item of apparel that they happen to be wearing and the pitcher wandering around out there like he's trying to get a message from above. And it, it was fairly frustrating. And I think that, uh, I think that they've taken steps in the right direction. Uh, Getting back to the auctions, though, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I like the pace of the auction when you're doing it, but in between, I like a little time to write guys down. I still try to do it manually. You can't do it anymore. In tout, you have to use a, some kind of software. For sure. Um, and, and I want to make it clear, you mentioned Joe. You mentioned two of my favorite people, and Joe Sheen, who's a good friend, and Theo Epstein, who is somebody I greatly respect. Also, Joe Sheehan is a, a frequent guest on this program, and I, you know, I I can't say enough about the Joe Sheehan newsletter, so go out and get that if you don't subscribe already. Joe and I agree on a lot of things. We don't agree on a lot of the new rules. I, I don't think he's in favor of the shift ban, and you know you can again, go to the newsletter and read his very interesting takes on that. But I think baseball, for all the piling on that people do about the poor choices baseball makes, I think putting Theo Epstein in charge of this reform of the game was really smart because he's somebody who mixes. I mean, look, he, he won a world championship, Boston, he won a world championship, Chicago, two teams that had legendary droughts, understanding a lot of new ideas in baseball, but he also understands old ideas and he, you have to have that mix, right? We always talk about, you have to be stat based and scouting based. You can't just be one or the other. And I think Theo Epstein bridges those two things really nicely. Um, you know, back to that auction I mentioned that we're going to do in a week or so. again, my friend Peter Morris. One year, what what he did is uh, Peter Kreutzer's great magazine, the the late great uh, fantasy baseball professional guide. We do our picks and pans. One year, Peter Morris wrote out all of my picks and pans, and then wrote them out in a sheet, printed them out, and handed them out to everybody. And whenever a player came out up that I had given a pick or a pan on, he said, "Oh, hang on a second, hang on a second. This this is a Tim Anderson. He's a Pianowski pick." And he'd read the paragraph off, and the whole room would, would laugh their asses off, and you know they'd know how I felt about the player, and you know they basically abused me for my own 
stated public opinions, but that's what you want, right? You want your friends to, to give you a hard time. And as you said, you know, that, that day, even though I do like a quick pace, I want to be around my friends. It, it, the older I get, the more important that is to me. And uh, I hated the Miss Tat Wars weekend. We're going to talk about that in a second. But um, yeah, let's let's have a mix of things. I'd like the auction to have a brisk pace, but let's also spend the day together and and cut on each other and have a good time. Well, you mentioned that we didn't see you at Tout Weekend uh, just this past weekend in New York because you were fighting an illness. I guess it prevented you from flying, I'm going to guess, from the nature of it. And otherwise, you probably would have come and infected us all just to have the fun. But it you were scheduled to draft in Tout. Which league were you supposed to be drafting in? I've been in the mixed league auction for several years now. And you drafted by proxy instead of just turning over your, your team. And it must have helped that your proxy was none other than Ron Chandler. How did you get Ron to draft your team? Yeah, really, really lucky. So fighting a sinus infection, thankfully I'm, I'm feeling a lot better. I'm, I'm not 100% yet, but I'm getting close. Thursday came about. I was supposed to fly. Couldn't do it. I was I pushed my flight back a day. But by mid-Thursday, I'm thinking, you know, not only do I not think I'm going to be able to do this, but I need to give Tout Wars time to replace me. You know, I, I don't want to throw this into their lap in the 11th hour. So midday Thursday, I wrote to the Tout board. I said, you know, this kills me to do this, and I'm sorry I'm doing it this late, but there's no way I'm going to be able to travel. I'm under the weather. It's not going to get better in time. And I just want to make sure you guys had time to fill the spot half hour, 45 minutes goes by and, and Todd, the great Todd Zola, again, f- very f- frequent um, communicator on this program. He said, well, what if we got somebody to auction for you? Let's say his name was Ron and you know, you, you could talk to him. He'd be your proxy. And so I, I think it was Todd's idea. Although I don't know, maybe Ron had volunteered to Todd. I don't know, but, but Todd Zola's fingerprints are all over this. I got in touch with Ron. I said, I would love it if you did this. And um, what we ended up doing is I gave him my my not so much my list, although it was my player list, but what I did is I went through and I and I put four different color codes on on players. Players I, I thought were strong targets, I put a green tag on. Players I liked more than consensus, but maybe not as strong as those original green guys, I put in blue. Players I liked less than consensus, but not like violently against, I put in yellow. And players I wanted absolutely no part of under any circumstances, I put in red. And we talked on the phone for about maybe 20 minutes on Friday before he went out to a show with his lovely daughter. And I gave him an idea of you know, kind of some of my general ethos of how I try to draft, what my roster construction is usually like. And I said, you know, I certainly want to, you know, you, you know how to play. I, I don't want to be too stringent with this. I'll check in with you periodically on Saturday, but I'm not going to hover over you like a helicopter person. I, you know, you, you're a really good player. Read the room. Nobody's a mandate. I'm not saying you have to adamantly get any player at any cost, read the room, read the prices. And he went out and got a team that's very representative of how I feel about the player pool. I think all just about everybody on my team, I think, is a, is a green or a blue player. He didn't get anybody on my yellow or red list. And it's with with very few exceptions, he got a, a team that I there's maybe one thing that I, I would have done differently in, in the moment, but um, you know, I don't know. I, I told Ron also, if this works out, it's a feather in your cap. If it doesn't work out, I'm sure it was my mismanagement during the season. So uh, thanks to, I don't know if Ron's listening to the show. Obviously he's, you know, the, the grandfather of HQ and, and really the grandfather of fantasy baseball in so many ways. I just, I'm happy to call him a friend and I really appreciative that he stepped in for me and got me a team that I feel really good about. Not so sure how crazy he's going to be about being called the grandfather of anything because he's not really <laughs> a grandfather, perhaps. I think I'm a godfather. I think I'm a godfather. It came yeah. out as grandfather. Yeah. I apologize. I apologize for that. But no, look, 
I, Ron is, you know, his resume speaks for itself, both his success in the fantasy space, the fact that he's worked for you know, the St. Louis Cardinals, that so many major league teams have used his methods and his metrics. I mean, his fingerprints are all over fantasy baseball. And, um, you know, he's an inaugural member, I believe, in the Fantasy Hall of Fame. And, you know, I, you know anybody listening to this show knows who Ron Chandler is. I just want to say how much I appreciate him and, and how tickled I was that I could stay in the league because you know, I hated to miss the league. And, and he got, again, he got me a team that was representative of my opinions, which I think given that we only had about a day to throw this together, I think speaks really well to his ability to assimilate information. And I thought he read the market room very well. So you mentioned that he, he has uh, built a team that you can uh, live with or even appreciate, but you said there was one thing as things were going on that you didn't quite agree with. What was that? Very minor. Um, the only thing I think I would have done differently, and, and I wasn't, again, I wasn't feeling great that weekend. I was monitoring the proceedings, but I wasn't in on every pick. I was just kind of ducking in when I could. I believe Ryan Mountcastle and and um, Anthony Rizzo went very close together and went for almost the exact same price. I think Mountcastle might have been a dollar extra. Mountcastle went to me. Rizzo went to somebody else. And because Tout is an OBP league, and I don't, I was more open to maybe buy a couple of guys who were more valuable in an average format than an OBP league. I think Rizzo might've been more valuable to me than Mountcastle. And they were about the same cost. I think they came out roughly around the same time. If I were sitting next to him, I would have been like, I really prefer Rizzo to Mountcastle, but this is really, really nitpicky. He also took one of the uh, Miami Marlins uh, pitching prospects who may be in the minors for about half the season. That's the type of player I generally wouldn't roster, but Again, these are incredible nitpicks. If I have 29 players on my team, I would say 27 of them I feel great about. Even Mountcastle, I did have as a target. I just thought Rizzo fit my roster shape a little bit better, and I did have him ranked a little bit higher. But he did a great job. He got a team that represents how I feel about the player pool very well. And and I I think doing that on the short notice he did it is extremely difficult. I thought he did an amazing job. Were they both green players, Mountcastle and Rizzo? I think they're both blues for me. So, okay. so both, you know, targets, but not pound on the on the door targets, but certainly targets. So as you said, the pace of tout is so fast that, you, you know, Ron, Ron didn't have the luxury of just relying on his own ranks and his own instincts. He, he was trying to use somebody else's opinions and somebody else's rankings and somebody else's invisible hand as he did this. So yeah, the fact that the roster he got for me was so, a representative of my opinions on the player pool, I thought was incredible. Uh, again, I, I I was expecting that maybe he'd get some of the guys I wanted and maybe I just have to accept some of the players he bought in the flow of the auction. But I, I thought he did an incredible job of, again, filling a team that was descriptive of how I feel about the 2023 player pool. Well, Tip of the hat to Ron Chandler for A, doing the job for you, and B, for doing a good job of it. Let's move on. Uh, it's Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. And Scott, in your regular Yahoo Sports column, you wrote recently some last-minute drafting tips. Uh, one of them seems pretty obvious. But I don't know how often we're reminded to draft hitters from good offensive teams. Just so people understand, what's the reasoning for that seemingly basic tip? Yeah, I, I know this screams out Captain Obvious, but there's a player who this specifically reflects to me. In the second round of your draft, you may say, okay, I'd like a power hitting corner. 
I see Pete Alonzo. I see Raphael Devers. I see Austin Riley. And I will occasionally see a Devers go before a Pete Alonzo or an Austin Riley. And, and even though I'm a Red Sox fan and, you know, Fenway is a great place to hit. I think this is the worst Red Sox lineup we've seen in about a decade. And I think it's a mistake to take Raphael Devers before Pete Alonzo, before Austin Riley, because the lineup buoyancy is so important. You want the lineup to turn over. You want people to be on base when you're hitting. You want people to drive you in when you're on base. You want just, again, the lineup to turn over more than a regular lineup. So maybe we've just been spoiled and we just think, okay, well, it's the Red Sox. Of course, they're going to have a great lineup. They don't have a great lineup. I mean, Kiki Hernandez may hit in the top of that lineup. He's going to have like a 311 OBP or something like that. I see dead spots all through that lineup. So Raphael Devers is a tremendous player. I would never consider him in the second round, and that's where his ADP falls. That's kind of the point I wanted to make is that you should love the early picks. The early offensive picks you make, you should love the offenses they're tied to. I think that makes a lot of sense. But you also said uh, elsewhere, all the pieces matter and that we do need to audit all 30 teams. It seems like a contradiction, but what was the point you were trying to make? Well, in part, all the pieces matter is reflective of the fact that I'm rewatching The Wire right now, which to me is one of the three greatest shows in TV history, along with The Sopranos and Mad Men. And, and The Wire is so good. I'm, I'm not sure. I may have to re-rank them. I probably had a third when I started this series, but it may be deserving of a higher rank than that. As far as all the pieces matter, this is more middle and later your draft where you need to know who's starting for the Nationals and who's starting for the Pirates and who's starting for the the godforsaken Oakland A's and stuff like that. There's a time when Seth Brown is the right pick. There's a time when Lane Thomas is the right pick. There's a time when Riley Green is the right pick. But that is more of a second half of the draft where Anybody who's a great player and a great offense is long gone. At this point, you're trying to take what you can get. And one reason why I love playing in mixed leagues and why in tout I switched from a mono league to the mixed league, I don't know, 10 years ago, whatever it was, is I think it's important to know every every team. I think it's great that you have to know the whole player pool. You have to know every starting pitcher. You have to know every closer. And that's what a mixed league forces you to do to go that deep in the player pool. I think mixed leagues get a bad rap. Well, they're certainly the more common uh, format these days, and and the mixed leagues, uh, as far as I understand it, are moving towards head-to-head, and they're moving towards smaller leagues, not even 15 teams, but 12-team leagues. And I used to hear the critique that a 12-team mixed league was too easy to play in because, obviously, every team is an all-star team or pretty close to it, and so it wasn't that challenging. And I think I don't think that's true. I think a 12-team league or even I've seen 10-team mixed leagues, it's easier in the draft, but I think it's got to be harder in the in the in-season team management from the point of view that everybody's going to be gr- trying to grind for those extra three plate appearances a week, which means every weekend you got to pour through the stats, you got to look at every single roster to see could this guy possibly is a you know right-handed hitter platoon guy but are they playing against three left-handed pitchers Thursday through Sunday of this week and you have to do that for everybody i think the shallower the league uh, the less work there is more work before the draft less work during the season yeah i think you know you get to those thinner mixed leagues it, it ultimately is going to lead to more data points right it's the waiver wire is going to have more choices your starting lineup is probably going to have more choices and I think that makes the league more dynamic. Another thing that turns me off a little bit about the mono leagues is that if you get one or two major injuries in AL only or NL only league, unless you are magical on the waiver wire, you're probably sunk. 
and anybody who's played in a mono league knows that feeling that, oh, I just lost my third baseman. Let's look in the player pool. Let's, let's see what third baseman eligible guys are out there. It's like, oh, this guy had six at bats last week. This guy had four at bats last week. There's a bunch of batch up, backup catchers. You know, it's like, what am I going to do? Right. You feel like your hands are tied. If you just, you know, you get the wrong couple of guys hurt, you can't do anything. I think that the mixed leagues just offer more playability. It's more, more data points, more choices, more in-season skill gets a chance to influence who wins the league. And that to me is a, is a feature, not a bug. Yeah, I wouldn't have. Uh, I, I had Edwin Diaz, Tristan McKenzie, and uh, Reese Hoskins all on one single team. And had that happened on any one of them happened on a mono league team, I would be dead. And as it is, I'm not in ter- terrific shape, but I do have some options. I've managed to replace a couple of those guys already. And I have hope, not a lot of hope at this point, because that's three guys of my top, you know, 10 picks. But. I still think I can manage and I, I play in the American league only. And I, and if I lose one of my top two or three auction guys, or I have Gosman and, uh, Christian Javier atop my rotation, I lose either one of those guys. I'm sunk. I mean, there's no two ways about it. So I hear what you're saying about that. And, uh, moving on, I, I wouldn't, I noticed that you were talking in your article about the increasingly dispersed distribution of saves and again, this is something that when experts sit around and talk about how that affects fantasy baseball, they all have different points of view. What's yours? You know, at first I found it kind of stressful and anxiety inducing, but I've done a 180 on that. We need fewer saves to be competitive. If we can find a player in a committee who can get double digit saves, that feels like a win now. I make the analogy to fantasy football where it's very similar to, to backfield utilization where we, we used to all want running back bell cows, guys who never came off the field, guys who get these huge touch counts. And that's a dying breed. There's very few of those guys now, just like the, the automatic push button closer is becoming more scarce. It's maybe the running back bell cow is more, is, is, is more scarce than the, the, the um, undeniable closer, but they're both moving in the right direction. They're not as common as they used to be. So what's happened to fantasy football is you used to be you had to have two star running backs or you weren't going anywhere. Now it's like if you just have one and then you kind of patch together the rest of it. And that's what a lot of people I think do in fantasy now with their closers. Give me one guy I can hang my hat on. And then maybe one guy who's part of a committee, like you know, one of the Seattle guys or somebody in Tampa Bay or something like that. And if that guy gets 12 or 15 saves, that's okay. And then you, know, you fight for scraps with everybody else. Uh, whether you take a closer on a bad team or you, you, you try to dip into a nebulous closer situation, maybe you call the, the Cubs situation, right. Or who's going to close in Chicago before they get Hendricks back and stuff like that. So I've, I've learned to actually enjoy it because I don't think, I think the idea is it used to be, I'd, I'd go into a draft like, okay, I need two really good closers. I feel good about that's one. Now I want one closer. I feel really good about. And if the draft fell a certain way and I didn't get that one bonafide closer, I don't think it's a kill shot because I feel like most teams are only going to have one anyway. We know there's a lot of attrition at the position. So you need fewer saves to be competitive. And to me, that helps me sleep at night. I think it's an interesting point of view to take. And the other thing about it that you have to keep in mind, especially in auction leagues, but it translates to to, uh, draft leagues as well, is that, as you said, there are fewer of those hang-your-hat-on guys in bullpens these days anyway. And when there's fewer of something, the laws of supply and demand say the price is going to go up. And eventually you start having to look at, uh, 
if you take your Edwin Diaz or your Emmanuel Clase in the second round or, or, you know, early third round, what are you, what's the opportunity cost? What are you giving up by doing that? And, and oftentimes when you look at the situation, I mean, a, a good closer will get you saves. Okay. So he gets you your 30 saves and that's a plus and probably the ratios will be some help. Although the number of innings, given the number of innings for the entire season mitigates against having a huge ratios impact. So basically you're talking about spending a second round pick for one category to do well in one category. And you're eschewing somebody like, I don't know, Austin Riley falls in that sort of early second round, uh, that second round tier or, um, Devers you mentioned, there's lots of really good four category, even five category hitters that are going there. And I don't know about the, the, uh, algebra that says one category doing well in one category outstrips doing well in four or five. My approach for that first closer has been the same for a while, which is that I want to take somebody who's maybe in the B plus tier who could end up in the A tier. A couple of years ago, that was Jordan Romano. A few years ago, that was Kirby Yates. Somebody who has unquestioned job security entering the season, but isn't going to be the first closer off the board. Maybe it's a Ryan Presley, somebody like that. Um, Rizal Iglesias was somebody I liked, although he's gotten hurt in spring training. So I had to back off him a little bit. Um, Ron did get him, by the way, for my Tot Wars team, and I was totally on board with that. I mean, it's not his fault that somebody got hurt after he selected him because I, I thought Iglesias was very much fit my my theme of what I want my closer to be. And that, that's a, a common theme for my players, too, in fantasy. Is I love I love getting somebody at the bottom of a tier who I think can climb a tier. I love getting you – know, my was the, the tagline to the player – the movie was a no stars, just talent. I love my fantasy teams to be like, you know, I don't need the stars. Just give me talent. You said that you like Tyro Estrada of San Francisco and Brendan Donovan of St. Louis for a particular reason. I think I know what it is, but explain what you were thinking there. Yeah, they, they qualify all over the place. And they're, they're both really parked in good lineup real estate. It looks like Donovan is going to hit lead off the majority of the time in St. Louis. In Yahoo leagues, he qualifies at every field position except catcher, player, and any play him anywhere. So, I love the idea. Like in basket, I love positionless basketball. I think back to that great Illinois team in the late '80s, where it's like everybody was about the same height and they could move all over the court. You think of Magic Johnson. I'm dating myself here. The uh, his rookie year finals, Kareem's hurt, so Magic Johnson jump setter. He played center for a while in that game. He mostly played point guard, but Magic Johnson could play power forward. He could play all over the court. I like my fantasy teams to be like that, where it's like, okay, I got an injury. Rather than having to replace whatever the position is in my injury, if I have a guy like Estrada, a guy like Donovan, or a team full of these Legos, as I call them, I can just bring up the best possible hitter on my bench, and the positions will fit because I have enough flexibility. So Estrada and Donovan are are two of my most rostered players, and I I won't list them on my boons and banes. I'm going to give you plenty of boons and banes later, but uh, I would have listed them if they weren't in this segment. I just want you to to try to come away with these guys if you have a draft remaining. I got Estrada in a couple of places, not only for that reason, but I just think he's poised to have a pretty good season anyway. And Brendan Donovan, I didn't get any shares of, but that wasn't because I didn't like him. It's just because it didn't work out that way. You had a couple of tips about uh, late game picks. Uh, and the first one was know your buried treasure. What did that mean in practice? Yeah, just players who have ADPs that don't make sense or they're buried in the draft applet where you're drafting. And some people will say, well, maybe you should go into your applet and rearrange it. I actually think that's a mistake. I, I want to know what my opponents are looking at, but I'll have to decide 
a piece of scratch paper and I'll have listed players who I think are misranked or a hundred or 150 slots lower than they should be. And I want them to be fresh in my mind at all times. You had a couple of other tips about those late gamers. Just know who's misranked. And again, I like the idea of a piece of scratch paper. You'll be surprised at how often like Elvis Andrews is a player I've been targeting late in drafts. Um, and I did get him in tout wars as well uh, through my proxy run. And it's, he's ranked a hundred, like 120, 130 slots lower than I think he should be. Uh, granted, it's maybe hard to reconcile who Andrews is because he was so bad in Oakland last year. And then he was so good in Chicago for about a quarter of a season. So I understand that could lead to some maybe disconnect of who he really is right now. I also like he's going to qualify at multiple positions, shortstop eligible to start the season, but second base eligible very early in the season. Just you'll be surprised at how many of your late, you know, if you have like 10 or 15 of these guys, you think are mispriced late in the draft. I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised when you get like six or seven of them, or you could get six or seven of them depending on your lineup construction. So it's just, it's just important to don't think you're going to remember. You're not going to remember drafts are dynamic. Drafts are chaotic. And in a world where we're all tied to technology, this is where all you need is a little piece of paper, a little gro- it's a little grocery list, right? Loaf of, loaf of bread, container of milk, a stick of butter, and uh, Elvis Andrews in the 24th round. I think that's excellent advice, especially for those of us who use draft software like Rotolab, and I'm certainly not knocking Rotolab. It's a terrific product. But when you get down to the, those uh, short strokes at the end of the draft, you know, the players aren't organized alphabetically. They're just on there in, in the order that the that the – software seems to think that they're valued at from top to bottom and they're all zero or minus one or minus two or minus six or whatever. That's not why you're drafting them. You're drafting them for upside. And I find that when I'm in that position, it's much handier to have, I don't keep a paper list. I keep a a Microsoft word list and it's just over on the side of the window. And I just, I call it up when it's time to start thinking about those kind of guys. And something else you said that I think is worthy of mentioning is Try to find guys who have upside, but that you're going to be okay with releasing if they don't work out pretty early. I think that's really important, Scott, because there's this uh, sort of fallacy that a lot of owners have, which is they don't understand the the idea of a sunk cost. They just want to hang on and they have a bit of bias towards a player because they picked him after all, and you don't want to give up what you have for what is a bit of an unknown thing. And I think having the mindset that this is a guy I'm drafting because if everything goes right, he could be a $15 player and I'm getting him for a buck. But if he doesn't work out after the first couple of weeks, off he goes and I'll, I'll try another one, you know, and you can rotate through those guys pretty effectively. Again, not so easy to do in mono leagues, but certainly easier to do in mixed leagues. Great piece of advice. The bottom, I don't know, 10%, 15%, 20% of your roster should be fluid. And I always looked at it like the Monty Hall problem where you um, you're given this money, this let's make a deal situation, three doors. They tell you one of them is uh, is not the right answer. And then you get the opportunity to change your mind from your original guess. And even though it's incredibly counterintuitive, you should change. And the reason why is because you have more information now that you didn't have at the time. And that's how I view the waiver wire moves you're going to make in two or three weeks. You might think, well, wait a minute. I, I liked my 28th round pick. Why am I giving up on him? Well, we have more information now. We know that 
I don't know, a, a team that wasn't sure who they were going to hit lead off. Well, guess what? Like I talked about Brendan Donovan, you know, maybe Brendan Donovan, it's not clear where he's going to hit. Maybe three weeks into the season, he's hit lead off, you know, 80%, 90% of the time. We have to view him differently than we might view him today. Or you know, the Chicago closer situation. I, I have some Michael Fulmer shares. If he's not closing two or three weeks into the season, I'm not going to wait and hope that changes if I see anything interesting on the waiver wire. And I'm sure I will. When we have more information, we can make a better choice in a mixed league. And most of my advice is geared towards mixed leagues. And nothing wrong with it. If you play in mono, you play in four by four. Those aren't my cups of tea. I don't know why the original game didn't have run scored, which I think is like the, one of the most important and underrated fantasy stats there is and should have been in that original game. But um, I, I prefer the mixed leagues. And I think you want to be fluid with the bottom of that roster. And you know, another theme is, and I, I know it's somewhere down the shot sheet, but I'll throw it up here. Wait for proof to me is a dead strategy. And I, and I know a lot of people will be like, oh, I'm not making any roster changes till May 15th. Or, you know, I, I'm going to wait and see what happens. What's going to happen is there are going to be players who are going to show themselves in April and you're not going to get any of them. Some, and look, I know there's a lot of false positives. I know we have to make judgments on players before we know. It's like, and somebody said, oh, it's a small sample. So what? You know, James Outman has hit the crap out of the ball for 10 days. Does that mean he's good? It doesn't matter. Somebody in your league is going to take a chance on him, whether or not you want to or not. And you, don't need to be right on that many guys. Your hit rate doesn't have to be great. It's like throwing a deep pass in football. There are advantages to it, even if the odds of completing it aren't particularly high. And that's how you look. have to look at the waiver wire. Again, please be fluid with the bottom. And you can draw the line wherever you want. But the bottom few picks in your roster should certainly be fluid. And you, as you said, you're going to have some of these players you draft with the idea that they're quickly developing stories. Again, I mentioned Michael Fulmer. I should know pretty soon if Chicago views him as a ninth inning option. And if they don't, I'll have no problem cutting him. Well, Scott, uh, this has been really interesting so far, as always. Uh, let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back, and we'll get you to tell us some more, including your boons and banes. Sounds great. That's Scott Pianowski of Yahoo Sports, and he'll be back in just a minute for part two of our conversation, including his boons and banes. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the GM's office, Ray and Brent present our annual preseason staff survey with HQ writers and researchers weighing in on the top of the player pool, a position-by-position -position overview, team-by-team -team reviews, starters and closers, and some open-ended picks and pans for the 2023 season. In research, analyst Ed DeCaria presents his draft-level analytics for 2023, including the sharpest risers and decliners, some subtle but important risers and decliners, players with the widest ADP variations, players generally going later than ADP and earlier, and the five S's of snake drafts, spring, snipe, settle, steal, and shrug. And in prospect, our first daily call-ups report of the season is on the way, and the first show of the Baseball HQ Prospect podcast, The Eyes Have It, is already up. It's the annual Thrive or Dive edition, with Chris Blessing and Brent Hershey discussing all the top rookies, including Gunnar Henderson, Corbin Carroll, Jordan Walker, Anthony Volpe, Oscar Colas, Hunter Brown, Hayden Wisniewski, and Grayson Rodriguez. 
And those are just three content items among dozens. A small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Facts and flukes performance validation, news updates in playing time today and roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, pitchers, and relievers. There's fantasy market analysis in the market pulse and injury analysis in the big hurt. Plus, a whole bunch more, including fantasy baseball research and all kinds of tools that you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And it's all why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick David here with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. Scott, welcome back to part two. Thank you, Patrick. On Twitter recently, Scott, you posted a short video you made with your Yahoo Sports colleagues, Andy Behrens and Dalton Del Don, about whom they would take if they had the first overall pick. All three of you got to choose. Uh, Before we get to your three picks, all of which were different, Andy made a point about where he thought the optimal first round pick was, and he wouldn't pick first overall if he had his druthers. Where would Andy pick if he had his pick? Yeah, I don't think a lot of us would pick first. and probably symbolic of the fact that we all took different guys. I believe Andy said he liked the fifth pick or fourth or fifth pick because he felt like a lot of these players were similar and he would get somebody who he didn't feel is that different than the first overall pick. He may even get his pick of the litter because the player you like could be different than the other players people like. And then you get an earlier pick in the second round. So if you're in a league that hasn't drafted yet, that has a KDS style where you can pick your draft preference. I, I don't like picking on the ends anyway. I, I know Gene actually does like that. He likes to pick in tandem. I feel like I lose my feel of the draft if I go too long without picks. I prefer kind of to be in the middle anyway. And this is, I think this is a great year to pick fifth. Yeah, I put down uh, five, four, three, two, one as my, uh, and then from the middle out, uh, I didn't want to pick in the middle. I ended up picking in the middle most of the time. Uh, you put Aaron Judge at the top of your list. What were you thinking? To me, he's got the highest floor, and I think the first round, a lot of times, everybody's got upside in the first round, but to me, it's often defined by floor. I dinged Trey Turner just a little bit for two reasons. One, no Harper for half the season. We did the video before the Hoskins injury, but now Hoskins is out. We'll see how much that hurts that team, but shortstop is so deep. I feel like you can get a good, it's so weird, Patrick. When I first got into fantasy, there were, you know, there's a handful of good hitting shortstops, and a lot of people were getting a dead spot at that position, and, and so many baseball teams were just happy to get a player who could make the plays at shortstop. They didn't care if it could hit so much. Now it's like shortstop is the fun zone, and I feel like you can do well at any ADP slot. Now, Trey Turner is a terrific player. He could easily be the, the number one overall player. So if somebody wants to take him early, I'm not going to say it's wrong, but I feel like it's not as deep. In the outfield these days, I feel like it's top-heavy position. And in leagues where you need five outfielders, you're, you'll be surprised. If you wait, in the old days, I think you just think, oh, whatever, there's always good outfielders. I think you have to be more proactive filling the outfield than in previous years. It's gotten to the point now where five years ago, if you said, okay, I'm pretty close on these two players, early, third, second, third, fourth round. One's an infielder, one's an outfielder. I'd say, oh, take the infielder. It's more scarce in the infield. I think the outfield is actually – become a little bit of a tricky navigation. So I wanted to go with high floor. I like the judge didn't cha- change teams. He's in a park that really accentuates his strengths. The lineup's good. It's, it's maybe not the best lineup in baseball, but it's a really good lineup. I think look, he's had a, a couple of dings, but I don't think he's an injury-prone player. I know he's not going to hit 62 home runs likely again, but 
regression to what? 45 home runs, 48 home runs. To me, he felt like the safest pick, and I'm looking more floor than upside because all these players have upside. And very few of them have a real sort of $17 player upside because most of them are at at absolute pinnacle of the game. And so you you look at a guy like Aaron Judge and you say, is there upside from 62 home runs? What's he going to hit 70? You know, I mean, I'm not saying it couldn't happen, but I think the safer bet is 50 than uh, going up uh, that much. Andy opted for Trey Turner. What were his rationales for taking the guy that you didn't want to take? Yeah, just a five-category player in the middle of his career in, in a good lineup, although, again, he didn't have the benefit of the Hoskins news, although we'll see. Maybe Derek Hall will be better than we expect, but just a, a five-category player and somebody who could maybe win a batting title, somebody who could maybe steal. I, I think i say Steve Gardner had one of his bold predictions with Trey Turner would steal 65 bases. Wouldn't that be fun? So um, just a dynamic five-category player, which Judge is not. Judge is not going to steal that many bases. He did steal a handful last year. I don't know how repeatable that is. Well, more than a handful. I think he got 16, which is, you know, puts him in the kind of almost in the upper echelons of base stealers, at least last year. I don't know how that's mm-hmm. going to translate this year. That's for sure. Uh, Dalton Del Don, meanwhile, took Ronald Acuna uh, as his first pick. What was his explanation? You haven't seen his best season yet. Could be a 30-30 guy, could be a 40-40 guy. And probably Turner and Judge are insulated by good lineups, but I think Atlanta has a better lineup than both those teams. And there's a lot of guys I want. I admit, I, I don't know if I mentioned Matt Olson on my Bruins and Baines. I don't think I did, but I want you to get Matt Olson this year. I think he's a great pick for a lot of reasons. I think Atlanta has the best lineup in baseball right now, one to nine. Of the three that you guys chose, it appeared to me that uh, Judge kind of leans into an expectation of limited downward regression that you mentioned. Acuna kind of depends on some expected significant upward regression, and Turner isn't really re- relying on regression in either direction. He just needs to be who he is. We might also consider experience and injury risks when we're thinking about these choices. Julio Rodriguez has been a very high pick, and I wonder if people are taking enough account of his age and injury risks. And uh, I wondered the same thing about Jose Ramirez. Uh, age risk for stolen base guys in particular has to be taken into account. What's your take on the risk profiles of the various options in those very top picks for a, a mixed 15 draft? Uh, you certainly mentioned the top five guys. I, I guess if it went six deep, Kyle Tucker would enter the conversation, who's also been dinged up this spring. To what degree are injuries knowable? And you know, it's funny. I, I don't like to draft the players who are already hurt, especially with pitchers, and that will be a theme that will come up a lot later when I give some of my banes. But somebody might look at Aaron Judge and say, well, wait a minute. There's been seasons where he's missed you know, a month of time. Acuna's missed a lot of time in recent years. Because Acuna is so early in his career, I see no reason to view him as a year-over-year injury risk if he's not hurt right now. Um, whereas somebody like, say, Jordan Alvarez, when he got hurt in spring training, and, man, a lot of Astros are getting hurt. I always wonder if this is one of these years where things aren't going to fall right for that team. Maybe Seattle can sneak that division out. But I don't like to draft players who are already hurt. As far as players, are they going to get hurt? Are they not going to get hurt? I, I don't know. Sometimes I think there's a little bit of a fool's errand to that. I mean, look, I, yes, I don't. I think Byron Buxton is a really difficult guy to draft because he's been hurt so many years in a row. But I can't tell you. Somebody will say, well, what, what's your level of confidence that Judge plays more games than Acuna? That, that's, I, I don't know how knowable that really is. 
No, I don't either. But like I said, I think it's something you have to take into account. And actually, the more I thought about it, the more I think if I had my choice of where to pick this year, it might have been a little later in the first round, like eighth or ninth in retrospect, because I think you might be better off in the long run being able to get a Freddie Freeman or a Vlad uh, early on and then get a third baseman on the way back, because first and third seems to me where the biggest donut holes are. Yeah, starting a team with like Vladimir Guerrero and Austin Riley sounds really good to me. Yeah, no kidding. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. And Scott, you co-host a podcast called Circling the Bases with your co-host DJ Short. And you guys had on an analyst named Vaughn Dalzell from NBC Sports Edge the other day. And you looked at some of the 2023 over-under propositions for team wins and you guys picked which bets you liked the best. And uh, I think you let off, and your favorite was taking Detroit to be under 69 and a half wins. <laughs> I, I have to ask, but I think I know about why. Yeah, just a, a lack of talent. You know, they actually outkicked their Pythagorean last year. They won more games than they should have, and they still came short of that of that number. And also, one of the things that you, you get with these losing teams is that if – non-long-term stars pan out with this team. If they come up with a closer or if they come up with like a, a middle of a career pitcher who has a, a good start, they'll probably be trade bait in the middle of the season because Detroit's not going to contend and they're going to want to kick the can down the road and try to try to maybe have a better team three or four years down the road. So I always feel like the contending teams, especially the big market teams, you can project them to get better in the middle of the season where by design, a lot of times these lesser teams will try to get worse later in the season and maybe Detroit just invested in the wrong guys Javier Baez and Eduardo Rodriguez man Javier Baez why throw that guy a strike when he'll sw- you can roll the ball up to the plate and I think he'd swing at it when you guys were discussing another favorite bet to somebody took the Pirates under 67 and a half you made the point that there's a connection between win totals and limited fantasy talent how do fantasy managers take advantage of the correlation I mean again there's a time and a place where you have to consider the weaker teams but Generally speaking, you're going to get more fantasy utility from winning teams and less fantasy utility from bad teams. You know, when people talk about, oh, your wins are a fool's errand and you know the starting pitchers don't get as many wins anymore, they don't go deep in the games, and that's all true. But I'll take my chances with a pitcher getting wins on, on the Blue Jays or on the Yankees or on the, on the Padres or on the Mets versus the Tigers or the A's or the Pirates or – the Nationals or something like that. Uh, again, the, the lineup buoyancy is a big thing for me. How often does your, your how often does the lineup turn over? Are people driving you in? Are there people to drive in? Now, the flip side of it is that you, you know, say you draft Brian Reynolds. It, it would be easy to imagine he gets off to a good start and he's not on the Pirates in the middle of the season. But one of the picks I actually made, uh, one of my pro picks in this exercise with DJ and Vaughn, and I'm glad you mentioned it, by the way. I, it's DJ Short works for Roto World. He's a member of Tout Wars. I've been really fun to be a co-host with him this spring, and I think we're going to do it in the season as well. I'm having a ball over there, sitting in with those guys. I actually listed the Reds as an overpick for me, and that was driven by I realized I was drafting all the Cincinnati Reds on my fantasy teams. I'm like, you know what? Maybe there's more to this team than I thought. And I see actually a front three in the rotation that I like. I like their closer. We know they play in a really good hitters park. And when I look at Colorado, who I don't think has a great offense this year, I think Cincinnati might be the most bang for your buck offense in, in fantasy baseball this year. Cause it's not like people are clamoring to get their guys, but 
it's still a great hitter park. And I see like six guys I really want to roster in this lineup. I actually have a fair number of reds this year myself. Yeah. You guys were talking about the Rays as a difficult team to manage from the point of view of fantasy assets and not in the same way as the Pirates and the Tigers and the weaker teams. What was the point about the Rays? Yeah, it's, well, 162 games, 162 lineups. We know they want to spread their saves out. And again, I, I mentioned earlier in the show, it's not that big of a deal for me, but what drives me crazy is that you, you have somebody on the Rays team with maybe one or two exceptions, and you don't know where they're hitting every day or if they're even in the lineup. They're very platoon-heavy. They're a very defensive-driven team, which generally helps their pitchers, but and I'm a Shane McClanahan guy this year. One guy who Ron did get for me, I think it might have been more on his maybe feeling for McClanahan than mine, but I really like McClanahan. I thought he did a really good job get, grabbing him on my roster. It's the lineup. It's the fact, Patrick, that I think they have more cutesiness with their lineup, and it drives me crazy sometimes. It does, and it's, it's hard to project a lot of what goes on there, for sure, especially about the counting stats. Uh, you said Arizona is a sneaky good bet to be at least quasi-competitive in real baseball, and that's going to provide a lot of fantasy value. What did you mean, and where's the value? Yeah, I mean, we all know Corbin Carroll's a hot prospect, and he's maybe going to have a hard time matching his ADP, but I think Jake McCarthy's at a nice price. I think Moreno, now that Kelly is hurt, is going to get a, a uptick of playing time, a catcher, and is a wonderful value. And Lourdes Gurriel last year, and you saw this up close in Toronto, he hit for average. He got on base. He didn't hit for power at all. He had a wrist injury all season. He's been a plus offensive player his entire career. I thought he was a great target that they got in, in the Varsho trade. And he's somebody, I, I think he might be in my boons and veins. He's somebody who I think has been mispriced all year. I could easily see him going back to being like a 280. 25, 85 type of player. Arizona is screened because the Dodgers and the Padres are, you know, big kids on the block. And the Giants recently have had like what 108 win season, whatever it is. Even Colorado, I don't think they're good, but they always have Coors Field, which is a shiny toy for fantasy. I see, you know, Christian Walker, very underrated, probably 25 to 30 home run source at first base. I, I see like five or six decent hitters in this lineup. They have a couple good pitchers at the front of the rotation. I don't know that the depth is there for them to be competitive at the back of the rotation, but it's it's a team that just gets lost in the shuffle because we're, we're all talking about, oh, the Padres just made another big move or the Dodgers have all this star power and even the Giants acquired a lot of interesting pitching and I'm always curious to see what they do. Um, I think Arizona gets overshadowed at times. I think they can be like an 81-81 team and they can have a lot of offensive players who will outkick their ADP. The one guy I'm worried about in that whole mix is Carroll. I just think he's being a little uh, little too much helium on that draft pick for the incredibly limited amount of major league experience he has. And there's a lot of warts in the minor league record as well. But I guess we'll see. Uh, before we go, I'd like to get your opinion about a couple of other sports. First of all, what would you think of the men's basketball tournament so far? Chaos, right? You yeah. Know, um, bracket, brackets in the trash. Well, the top 25 into the tournament, Houston was the number one team. They had three losses. Everybody else in the top 25 had at least five losses. I had done a piece with Frank Schwab, my Yahoo colleague, where we broke down the tournament and gave some picks. I'm sure uh, you know the stuff that we picked doesn't look great now because nobody's really does, but – one of the things I said is there's not a team here where it's going to be like, oh, my God, how are they going to lose? You know, you're going to remember if they get upset, it's going to be like this watershed moment. I mean, I guess that's a little bit different because Purdue did lose and the 16-1 upset is something you do remember. But 
although a lot of people saw Purdue as a flawed team. And we know Big Ten has not run well in recent tournaments, so it's been a hard conference to trust. But in a year where just about everybody had five or more losses, even among the top seeds, it just made for a tournament where anybody could beat anybody. And I know UConn's kind of the heavy favorite to win. They're they're better than even money to, to win the title now. But I, I feel like all four teams have a puncher's chance. It's been fun. I wouldn't want every tournament to be like this. I think sports actually work well when there's clear villains and there's clear favorites and you know a team that everybody's either for or against and everything. I think baseball's better when the Yankees are great and, and college football's better when Notre Dame is great or Alabama is the Death Star. Uh, Duke is kind of that team for college basketball on the men's side. I they put together late; they didn't have a great tournament, but. I think it's more interesting when maybe you know at least one number one seed makes the final four. But as a one-off, I thought it's been an interesting tournament. There's been some really fun games. That Gonzaga UCLA game was a blast. The Michigan State overtime game against Kansas State was really fun. Obviously, we'll all remember a, a number one seed losing to a 16 seed for the second time in history. So it's been memorable. I wouldn't want every tournament to be this underdog-driven, but the way it's run, I've I've gotten a lot of fun with it. And we're both Bruins fans, and through 73 games, the Bruins are at 119 points in the standings. They're 16 points clear of the second-place team, uh, Carolina Hurricanes, whom they beat on Sunday in a shootout. Do We tend to look at the Bruins through black and gold glasses, I guess, but how good is this Bruins team? It's awfully good. It's awfully deep. The deepest blue line in the league. They have 12 really good forwards they can roll out. They'll scratch a good forward every night. And I thought it was important. They did a couple of things this year. Although I thought Bruce Cassidy was a good coach, I thought it was maybe time for the players to have a different voice in the locker room. And Jim Montgomery just seems like the right guy at the right time. I remember watching him play in college. He's part of that great main team that only lost one game in 1993. Paul Correa's freshman year, he had 100 points. Paul Correa did as a rookie. I think Montgomery had 95 points on that team best college team I ever saw, but he seemed like the right guy at the right time. And they broke up that top line, right? They had all their eggs in one basket with Bergeron, with Marchand, with Pasternak. And I think they realized that they needed to fluctuate the, the, the structure, of the scoring more balanced. And I think it's really worked well for the team. I, I, I thought that was a mistake to have everybody on the same line. You mentioned the Bruins forwards, and we tend to think of these powerhouse teams in the NHL as being real high scoring. The, we, we all remember the Oilers, of course, in their dynasty years. The Islanders could score a lot of goals. But the Bruins seem to be winning with keeping the puck out of the net rather than putting it in the other guy's net. How, how much has that been noticeable in the coverage of the team and in, in your own experience of watching the team? Is this a, a defense forward team? Unbelievable, unbelievable collection. Yeah, I'm looking at their top three pairings. You know, Charlie McAvoy is somebody. He won't win the Norris Trophy this year, but he could win it some year. He's turned into a star and one of their alternate captains, one of the leaders of this team. Hampus Lindholm is a player they traded for last year. And they've done a really good job of identifying some players not on their roster who they thought had upside to maybe jump a level and play, and that's what Lindholm has done. He actually might get down ballot. Yeah, he won't win the Norris Trophy. But he he might get some down ballot consideration. He's been an unbelievable player, much better than anybody I think realized. And then they trade for Dmitry Orloff at the deadline. Washington, he's on their third pairing right now. He'll get some power play time, uh, as will Lindholm, as will McAvoy. They don't have, you know, Brandon Carl's a rock solid guy. Matt Grizzlick's a rock solid player. Connor Clifton, they have seven good defensemen they can play. 
And then they also, I talked about identifying players on other teams that maybe had a chance to be better than they'd been on those other teams. They get Linus Allmark. Now maybe Linus Allmark's just having one of those seasons where the, the, the puck is a beach ball and you just can't go wrong. And it helps that he's got, it's not only a bunch of forwards who play all 200 feet, but he's got the, the deepest defense in the league by far in front of him. But Allmark's been incredible. There's been some games. A couple times they've gone on the road. They've had a little bit of fatigue. They, they played a game in Edmonton maybe a month ago. And it was a classic Edmonton, right? Because Connor McDavid was the best player on the ice. He was unbelievable all game. And yet Allmark stood in his head. Uh, McDavid scored twice and the Oilers lost anyway. And I joked about it. I said, you know, Connor McDavid dominates game, Oilers lose. Some, some things never change. Although maybe Edmonton this year is going to go deeper in the playoffs. They finally have broken up. You know, they've accepted that McDavid and Dreisaitl, as great as they are, they shouldn't be on the same line. And it, it's probably better off that they're not. They can obviously play together on the power play. But the one thing, I, the two things, I guess the two things I'm worried about with the Bruins is a, as a New England sports fan. And this is one of the best, we, we, my friends and I, you know, uh, my friends Steve Gleason, John Greco, Larry Holt, uh, Robbie Touze, Don Port, we talk about Boston sports and we're talking about, is this, where does this Bruins team rank with the great Boston sports teams of our lifetime? Like the, the 86 Celtics, the 2007 Patriots, or uh, Johnny Greco mentioned the 2018 Red Sox. I think this team's right there with any of those teams. I, I think this 86 Celtics comes in first, but I, I think the Bruins could be maybe second on this list, depending if they win a title. But two things. One, the Stanley Cup's just really hard to win. It's not like other playoffs, like the NBA, if you're a seven or an eight seed, Unless you were misseeded because of injuries or something, you have like no chance to win the NBA title pretty much. But in the NHL, any team in the tournament can win. And the other thing, if the Bruins get knocked out, other than the fact that Carolina is really good and Tampa Bay is really good, the Rangers are really good. The Eastern Conference is the better of the two conferences. Uh, Thankfully, they won't have to play all those teams if they go deep. But the one thing I don't love about this team, this is a, a, a part of the team that's okay. I don't think it's great. Is that the power play could be better? And I and I wish Orlov has offensive skill, and McAvoy has offensive skill, and Lindholm has offensive skill. But I wish this team had an Eric Carlson, like just a, a maestro at the point. And there's been weeks have gone by where the team has continued to win, but the power play would go through like you know two for nineteen stretches and stuff like that. Part of that is just the variance of a long season. But in the playoffs, when there's less scoring, I think the playoff the power play in the playoffs becomes more important. If the Bruins get knocked out and it's not just, well, their opposing goalie, you know, stood in his head or something like that, I think it will be because maybe the power play wasn't as good as it needed to be. Now, now, mind you, the flip side of that is that when I'm talking about how great the defense is and how great the goaltending is in Boston, they also have a really good number two in Jeremy Swayman. Their penalty killing is outstanding. It's gotten to the point where if you're a Bruins fan, they take a penalty. You don't even feel stressed about it. You just expect them to kill it. That's how good the unit is. It's also a really nice mix. The roster is a nice mix of veterans and of players who are on the up escalator. It's You don't want a team that's too young. You certainly don't want a team that's too old. I think it's a really nice mix. Stanley Cup's the hardest trophy to win. And um, 16 teams get in the tournament. All 16 really have a puncher's chance, but I, I can't wait. I will be invested. every. I've, I've been watching a lot of hockey anyway, but when the playoffs come, I literally will I'll have the whole schedule mapped out on my phone and I will watch every minute of every Bruins playoff game. And I'm very excited. It's hard to expect any team to win. Their true odds are still five or six to one. And that's just an overwhelming favorite. But um, this has been the best Bruins team of my lifetime. And that's saying something. 
Well, they're not the best Bruins team of my lifetime. That's only because I'm older than you and I grew up with the Or Esposito uh, Bruins, still maybe the greatest team I ever saw. I have to give props to Montreal in the sort of Larry Robinson, uh, Guy Lafleur years. That was a pretty good hockey club too, but we don't have to worry about Montreal in this year's playoffs at any rate. You mentioned that the big bad Bruins and you know, earlier you had that we, we were setting up shop. You had the Bobby or the, the, uh, the game winning goal in 1970. When he poked it, uh, by the, Glenn Hall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No Picard, you know, he tripped over a stick. I still think Picard tripped him on purpose. And you know, the great or flying through the air, there's a statue of that in front of the TD garden, but the Bruins won the Stanley Cup. And again, this I was alive for this, but I wasn't aware of it. I was just too young. They won the Cup in 1970. They won the Cup in 1972. It was the 1971 team that absolutely took the record book and ripped it to shreds, much like the 2007 Patriots. And then they got in the playoffs, and Ken Dryden came out of Cornell and, and stood on his head. That's still the best goalie I ever saw. And, you know, this – Bruins team reminds me a little bit of that Canadians team and that the depth of the defense. I know I think that Canadians team had better defense because you know Larry Robinson's one of the best players in NHL history and Serge Chavard was great and Keelan Point was great. That Canadians team was just ridiculous. And growing up as a Boston Bruins fan, I always felt we'd lose to the Canadians. I remember the first time we beat them in a playoff series in the 80s. I couldn't believe it. But the the Bruins team that smashed the record book that put up ridiculous numbers was that 71 team. And they didn't win the Stanley Cup. They got knocked out in the first round because Dryden stood on his head. Yep. I, I remember that. And like I said, that's one thing we don't have to worry about this year is Montreal, of course, is on a sort of fairly historic uh, downswing. It, it they, wasn't that long ago. They were in the Stanley long Cup ago. finals. That's right. Yeah. That's crazy, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it, it certainly happens. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio or Hockey HQ Radio. I don't know. Yes. Uh, sports HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. And Scott, as you know, I like to wrap up these discussions by looking at Boons and Baines. As you might also know, we've changed the structure of it a bit to go by tier rather than by just positions and leagues. So let's start with your Boons. These are players who look like good value to you. Who in the early rounds looks like a Boon batter? So I'll just let people know. I, I tried to go about maybe top 75 on my first tier somewhere in the top 150 for my second tiers and then outside the top 150 for my third tier only because <coughs> if you go too deep on on the final tier especially for the banes it's just i mean you know saying somebody had picked 270 as a bane doesn't make a lot of sense to me i'll also try to give you a lot of options i, I can't guarantee you these will be the best picks but at least i'll give you the highest volume of picks early round boons marcus Simeon, six weeks didn't hit the rest of the season from mid-May, I know it's arbitrary endpoints, but maybe he just needed to get acclimated to his new city. He was a top five fantasy player the rest of the season. He's going in the third round in ADP. I say you take him in the second round and you're going to make an easy profit. Jess Chisholm to me is a 20-40 season waiting to happen. He just needs to stay healthy. Alex Bregman, poor start last year. He was coming off for surgery. He was a top 50 hitter in the second half of the year. I think that's how he should be priced. I don't think he's a giveaway at his ADP, but I think he's easy profit. I would like to get Bregman on my teams, even with a lot of other things going wrong in Houston right now. And how about a mid-round batter boon? Willie Adamas has changed his game in Milwaukee. Better park. He's adjusted his eyesight. He had an eyesight problem in Tampa Bay. I'm not sure exactly what he did, but he's seeing the ball better. He's such an under, he's going to hit 30 homers, drive at 100 runs, have good lineup real estate. And I think he's a round or two cheaper than he should be. 
I love catchers you don't catch in fantasy. That's Tyler Stevenson. Just needs to stay healthy. Really good park. Cincinnati lineup maybe isn't great one to nine, but I see five or six hitters in there that I like. He's my most rostered catcher. Andrew Vaughn finally has a position to call his own in Chicago. He's at first base. Third year in the majors. He was a third overall pick of his draft class. I think this is a year Andrew Vaughn puts it all together. And how about a late round of batter boon or boons? I, I did mention Elvis Andrews and Lourdes Gurriel earlier, so I'll, I'll just mention them again here in passing. Uh, Andrews was really good for Chicago. I know he wasn't good in Oakland, but I think this category of juice at play there, Gurriel just needs to stay healthy. He could he could easily be like, I think, a 280, 365, you know, 480 type of player on an underrated Arizona team. James Outman, I don't know how the playing time is going to filter in L.A., but he, I mean, he hit in AAA last year, a little bit of a late bloomer, hit in a short cup of coffee with the Dodgers, and I don't know. I don't know if Jason Hayward has anything left to give us. I think James Outman has a shot at maybe 25 home runs for the Dodgers, and you're getting them awfully cheap. Over to the mound, how about an early round pitcher who's a boon? You know, I, the Philadelphia staff, uh, asked, uh, Aaron Noah, Austin Noah. Aaron Noah is always one of my favorite guys to watch because he's got such great control and he also can miss bats. And and maybe Zach Wheeler is even more of a target for me because I think he has the body type that makes him generally durable. Only 26 starts last year, but every other season before that, the last three or four, he's been basically a full season guy. I think you're getting 200 strikeouts from Wheeler and I don't think the cost is that expensive. How about in the middle rounds, a pitcher boon? Yeah, I talk sometimes about when a lot of items are similar and they cluster together, it can make them values because the market doesn't know how to price them. And that's how I feel about the Seattle staff. They have four pitchers. Maybe none of them are truly a number one, but they're all like number twos. And they, I think they cannibalize each other a little bit. And so George Kirby and Logan Gilbert, I feel like are going around or two cheaper than they should only because the market looks at four good pitchers and maybe doesn't know how to to differentiate from between the group. I also think Seattle's an interesting bet to maybe steal that division. I think that's an interesting point about Kirby and Gilbert because a lot of people are going to look at the staff and go, well, third starter, fourth starter, I'm not paying second round or second starter money for the, the, these these guys. And actually, as you said, the playing field's a lot more level in Seattle's rotation than it looks like uh, from just who's on the roster where. And how about a pitcher in the late rounds who's a boon? Uh, three guys I'm targeting. I know Miles Michaelis is a pitch-to-contact guy, and that makes us nervous in today's day and age. But St. Louis has all these gold glove guys in the field. They they turn the batted balls into outs so well. Obviously, they won't have the benefit of the shift. But when you're hitting the ball to Nolan Arenado, it's usually an out. And there's a lot of guys on St. Louis you can say that about. So I'll take my chances with him. Uh, Tyler Malle got hurt by the Cincinnati Park. Then he had some injuries. Now he's in Minnesota, better defense. I think he could maybe strike out 180 guys. I'm interested in him. Now, now, Graham Ashcraft still has to pitch in Cincinnati, but I really like all their top three guys. Maybe Green's a little bit too pricey for me, but I have some Nick Lodolo and Graham Ashcraft, I think is a great value going well outside the top 200. I can see him striking out 170 guys. Over we go to the Baines. How about an early round batter you think could be a Bane? Don't trust Bobby Witt. Uh, OBP under 300. I know the category juice is great, but he's been pushed into the first round of some leagues, which I think is highly expectant. And I, I talk about not wanting to invest early picks in bad offenses. The Royals have three or four good hitters and like four or five bad ones. So I'm not going to pay that price on Witt. Raphael Devers, because of his supporting cast, makes me nervous. 
Paul Goldschmidt was really lucky in the expected stats last year. I'm a huge Goldie fan. I know he's coming off the MVP. I think he's on a trajectory to go to the Hall of Fame, and I'd love to see him make it. But he's about a round too expensive this season. In the mid-rounds, who's a batter bane? I'm not convinced Tommy Edmond hits leadoff all year. Granted, I said this last year, maybe even on this program, and I didn't get it right, but I think the Cardinals have better OBP guys, maybe Brandon Donovan, one of those guys. I think Edmund could easily bet 7th, 8th, or ninth for a majority of the season. And when you need to make your value from runs scored and stolen bases, you need that roster real estate, that lineup real estate. I, I don't think Edmund – I think he's going to hit 7th, 8th, or ninth for a decent chunk of the year. I don't really think he's a great hitter anyway. I mean, generally, his OBP might be about 315 or so. He's going to keep the job because he has the glove, but I don't trust the bat. Also, Mitch Hanniger has been – a player's had injury problems. You want to see him get right, but now he goes to San Francisco, which is, you know, the, I know San, Seattle wasn't a great place to hit either, but between Hanniger being dinged up and going to San Francisco, I'm not comfortable that he's going to be a player who turns it around. Michael Conforto is also a lot cheaper, but he's another guy I'm not willing to get invested in. A lot of San Francisco pitchers I like at good prices, but uh, their hitters like, uh, like Hanniger, like Conforto, make me nervous. You'll be impressed by my outfield in one of my teams. It's uh, Conforto and Stramski and who, whoever else is in the outfield there with uh, Hanniger Hurt. <laughs> I've got all three of them. No, I, I, I'm often wrong, Patrick. So when, uh, if I'm going to be wrong, I would love it to be to the benefit of you. One of those things, though, you know, you just keep grabbing guys because you think they're excellent value where you get them, which was in the, all three cases, the late rounds. You know, they'll play. They'll get their plate appearances. I don't know. I, I don't like the park for sure, but at the time it seemed like the thing to do. Uh, in the late rounds, who's a batter bane? Again, I'm looking kind of outside top 150 because I don't want to give you somebody so late that the advice doesn't have any value. <coughs> I think pitchers solved Cody Bellinger. I don't think he's fixable. He's leaving the Dodgers at the right time. He just needs a change of scenery, but I don't think the Cubs are going to be able to fix him. And Alex Verdugo is just one of those guys that's like, well, what does he do? What's his plus thing? He'll hit maybe for a plus average. What are you going to get? 12 home runs, maybe seven stolen bases. I mentioned the Red Sox having a lesser lineup than usual. I Go, go for somebody who's got something you can hang your hat on with upside. I think Verdugo is just somebody who's just meh across the board. I, a little bit. Not that you're going to kill your season, but I don't know what the upside is, and you're drafting him in a pocket, but you need some plausible upside. Back over to the mound we go. In the early round, who's a pitcher, who's a bane? Yeah, I, I picked on a lot of guys who have injury concerns or are already hurt, and I realize that may be a little bit of a cop-out, but Jacob DeGrom when healthy is the best pitcher in baseball, my favorite guy to watch, but I don't want to sign up for six or seven months of stress. I used to call Steven Strasburg Strasburg because I felt like you just never could relax, always wondering when the other shoe was going to drop, and DeGrom's even worse than that because he costs more. And if he gets hurt, it's more catastrophic to your team. I would love it if Jacob DeGrom made 25-plus starts. And if everybody made 30 starts in baseball, he'd be my first – I'd pick him in the first round. I might take him in the first overall pick. I just feel like it's a fool's errand to bet on that at this point in his career. I He's in his mid-30s now. I, I hope Jacob DeGrom has a great season. I'm not going to – he's not going to be on my team. In the middle rounds, how about a pitcher, Bain? So Carlos Rodon's already hurt. Tyler Glass now, a guy who's what, been over 84 innings once or 88 innings once in his career, already hurt. Chris Sale has 11 starts his last three seasons. I'm shocked. And he's always had that violent delivery. A lot of people thought, I mean, Keith Law famously thought he's going to be a reliever. Sale has already beaten his projection, but 
I joked that when the Red Sox offered him the extension that Chris Sale must have driven in the park, you know, 100 miles an hour and, and blown through all the red lights to sign that contract because it was like a bad deal the moment the ink went to the paper. Uh, don't don't draft pitchers who are already hurt unless the market is giving you a great price. You're not getting that on Rodon or Glass now. And based on what Sale's done the last three years, I'm shocked that his age – I thought his ADP would like be well into the 200s, but people still – betting on Chris Sale into his mid-30s. I think it's a big mistake. I talked with Ray about this a couple of weeks ago, but the Boston media were making quite a to-do about Chris Sale's new attitude. He seems like a much more happy-go-lucky kind of uh, isn't everything wonderful, tweeting birds and uh, sun, sun shining. I can't believe I've got this great life. Is that anything to hang your hat on as far as giving Chris Sale any kind of benefit of any kind of doubt? Uh, nice to hear it um, because he, he seemed to have such an antagonistic relationship with the public and the media the last few years. And I don't want to pile on sale too much because, <coughs> again, Red Sox fan, the guy's won championship with us. He, he's a warrior. He'll pitch. He'll pitch hurt. And he's earned his money. And, you know, I, I joked about his contract. I mean, I'm not sorry that he got paid. Um, it was probably underpaid for the better part of his career. It's the way athletes always often work with their careers where they're underpaid when they're really great. Maybe they're overpaid in the second phase of their career. I'd love it. As a Red Sox fan, I'd love it if he turned it around. But it's I say a lot of times it's no fun to play fantasy. Baseball is an actuary, but the actuary instincts in me can't trust Chris Sale. And then if I'm wrong, I'll, I'll just say, well, I'm a Red Sox fan. I'm happy to see him pitching well again. And finally, how about a late-round pitcher who could be a bane? Yeah, Jose Barrios, um, everything went in the wrong direction last year. Strikeouts down, walks up, home run problem. Now the fences are coming in. I know the fences are being raised a little bit, but I think the net of that is going to be Toronto is a more offensively friendly park. I'm just afraid. I talk about sometimes players like a cheese player, once the cheese goes bad, don't bet on the cheese going good. I'm wondering if the cheese has maybe gone bad for Jose Barrios. Scott Pianowski's Boons, Marcus Semyon, Jazz Chisholm, Alex Bregman, Willie Adamas, Tyler Stevenson, and Andrew Vaughn, and Elvis Andrus, Lourdes Gurriel Jr., and James Outman. His pitcher Boons, Aaron Nola, Zach Wheeler, and pretty much a lot of the guys in Philadelphia, his mid-round guys, the whole Seattle staff, but especially George Kirby and Logan Gilbert, and his late-round Boons, Miles Michaelis, Tyler Molly, and Graham Ashcraft. His Baines, Bobby Witt, Raphael Devers, Paul Goldschmidt among the early round batters, Tommy Edmund, Mitch Hanniger, and Michael Conforto in the mid rounds, and in the late rounds, Cody Bellinger and Alex Verdugo. His early round pitcher, Bain, sad to say Jacob deGrom, but you can certainly understand the sentiment. In the mid rounds, Carlos Rodon, Tyler Glasnow, Chris Sale, and in the late rounds, Jose Barrios. Well, Scott, this has been a treat as I expected it would be. I appreciate you coming off your deathbed, it sounds like, and uh, participating in Baseball HQ Radio. Again, uh, tell your tell our listeners where they can keep up with your work. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I, I apologize to everybody having to listen to me cough a little bit during the show. Also, I couldn't get my best microphone working, so I apologize for the, the sound quality not being as up to the level it should be. It's not Patrick's fault. It's my fault. But it is always wonderful to talk to you. This is so much fun. You can follow me on Twitter at Scott underscore Pianowski, where I welcome discussion, you know, in the spirit of, of Laura Michaels and Steve Moyer, I welcome discussion on music, on movies, on travel, on certainly on sports. Let's talk baseball. Let's talk hockey. Let's talk basketball. Let's talk golf, whatever it is. Um, you know, you heard a good joke, you, something, you know, your, your kid 
you know, did a nice piece of art, whatever. You want to show me a picture of your dog. I'm a human being as much as anything, but it is baseball season. And obviously we can talk a lot of baseball. Catch my work at Yahoo Sports. I am an occasional uh, part of the Yahoo Fantasy Football Forecast. As I mentioned this year, I'm doing podcasting on baseball with DJ Short at Roto World, his excellent Around the Bases podcast, which is a couple times a week. We generally tape on Mondays and Wednesdays. So I hope you check that out. And if you look, there's still time to do another draft. Get over to Yahoo Sports, draft with your friends, draft with people you don't know, do a draft, do an auction, get some of that FOMO scratched out, some of the players you haven't drafted yet. Um, you know, this, we all have those players, right? We, I like this guy this season. He's not on my team yet. So why not do another draft at Yahoo Sports? But again, that Twitter's uh, my home base, at least until they drive that platform into the ground. They haven't done it yet. So uh, I spend a lot of time there and I hope we can talk. Whatever it is, again, sports, music, life, uh, I'm an open book for you. All right. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. Talk to you soon. Go Bruins. That's Scott Pianowski, the Hall of Famer from Yahoo Sports. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 28th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number nine of the 2023 fantasy baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Tuesday Tout Edition, Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. Scott is a longtime friend of the show and of mine, and he's a fantasy sports writer Hall of Famer, one of the best fantasy writers in the business, and not just baseball. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to iTunes, Spotify, Google Pods, Apple Pods, Pocket Cast, wherever you catch your podcasts. And if they'll let you, leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It does help us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast growing. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with another Friday News Edition featuring analysis of the latest news from one of Baseball HQ's analysts. That's coming up on Friday, another Friday News Edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk with you Friday, and for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.